Pastor Brown, our assistant pastor, and my predecessor as senior pastor here at Faith, will be preaching for us this morning. And so this is our scripture text, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Father, we come into your presence, and we are so grateful that you have not left us alone. We're grateful that you have spoken to us in Holy Scripture that you have shown us, Father, how it is that we can be freed from our sin, that we can live lives that are pleasing to you. We thank you, Father, that you have shown us that we are not alone as we struggle to please you, that you not only tell us how it is that we can bring you pleasure, but you uh, take away our sin and make us holy in your sight. You indwell us by your Holy Spirit. You empower us by that spirit of Christ to live as you would have us to live. We pray, Father, that you would provide for all the needs of this place where the gospel is proclaimed regularly. We pray that, Father, as your people are prospered, that they will share generously with you uh, and your work here, that all the needs of your house might be met. Father, we're mindful of the fact that our witness stands throughout the U.S., uh, throughout the world. And Father, we have obligations in far off places. We pray, Father, that we might be faithful in sending ambassadors to take your word uh, to people who don't know Jesus. Father, again, we pray that you would speak to us. We recognize that Christ is central in the word, that the scripture is the word of Christ. We also recognize that where two or three are gathered together in his name, that he is present in a special way. We pray, Father, that we might be aware of his presence with us. We ask, Father, that he would work in our midst, that he would burn these truths upon our hearts, that we would be people as we come to the table of the Lord who give up our sin readily, as we see the dangers of holding on. 
And we pray, Father, that we might claim the promise that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from every righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. By nature, humans long to be autonomous. We at our core wanna do what we wanna do in the way we wanna do it, and we wanna do it when we wanna do it. You see how that desire is baked into a three-year-old child when that child turns to his parent and yells, no, I don't want to. We hear the longing for independence in the student who turns to a teacher and says, you can't make me do anything I don't want to do. It's also evident in the words of a wife who says, I will never submit to him. And in the actions of a husband who refuses to obey God's command to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The longing for autonomy that lies deep in the heart has often been witnessed by a concerned church member who sees a sin in some other member of the local body, works up the courage to prayerfully and carefully go to that fellow church member and point out to him or her their sin and hear what gives you the right to tell me how to live my life. Sinless human beings can be put in a perfect environment with but one limitation on their freedom and the longing to be free of all restraint will pull them in the direction of testing God's promise in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now we know that Satan tempted Eve to eat, but read the first six verses of Genesis chapter three this afternoon and see if it's not possible that Satan was working on a desire that already existed in Eve. See if you cannot find there that maybe she was already looking at that tree and wondering what it would be like to be free from all restraint, to be absolutely autonomous by giving that fruit a try. Sinless human beings are wired for such things. I have really good news for us today, and it's this. If you have received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you have eternal life, life that is everlasting. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 17, section one states this, they whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Now that is a very important uh, statement for the faith of Reformed and Presbyterian people. We call that doctrine the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But it's not just Presbyterian. There are many, many evangelical Orthodox brothers and sisters of different communions who absolutely believe what we believe in regard to perseverance. Lorraine Bettner, in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, writes this. And if this is true, this is incredibly good news, and it is true. The saints in heaven are happier, but no more secure than our true believers in this world. 
Now think about that. He's saying that in this world, if you know Jesus, being present and having to deal with your own sin that remains within you, the pull of the world, your flesh again, and the devil, you're as secure in your salvation as the people who are in heaven who have been delivered from the presence of that and from the possibility of sinning. People who are in the absolute safety of their eternal home. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that there is a war that rages continuously for your soul. That Satan is at work continually trying to destroy your faith. But the promise of God is well recorded in a hymn by an unknown author that was published in a hymn book by John Rapon in 1787, How Firm a Foundation. In that song we sing, the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Now, our ultimate authority for what we believe should not be hymn writers or the Westminster Confession or theologians solely. Everything we believe must be taught in Holy Scripture. And the good news is that the scriptural proof for the perseverance of the saints, of true believers, is abundant. Now listen to just a few of the scriptures that teach this. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. In John 5, 24, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. In John 10, 27 through 29, our Lord promises, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. Look at the picture. You're in Jesus' hand and the way I see it, Jesus is in the Father's hand, who is going to be able to take away what you've committed to Christ? Paul tells us in Hebrews 10, 14, by one sacrifice, he, Jesus Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. In Philippians 1, 6, a verse that would be great for us all to memorize, he writes, being confident of this, that he, that is God, who has begun a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Until the consummation of all things, we are secure. And then in the words of the apostle in Romans 8, verses 38 through 39, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we could read scripture here until the end of the hour that teaches clearly that God graciously chose you in eternity past 
to receive saving grace. That Christ made full satisfaction at Calvary for every sin that you will ever commit, and that the Holy Spirit called us to faith and new life, and he works in us so that over time, we are being made more and more into the image, conformed to the image of his son, Christ Jesus. Now with all of the revelation that God has given us, it is most reasonable to conclude that he who has done and is doing saving work in us will not let his plan for us fail. He will not change his mind with regard to saving us. Even human parents seldom ever adopt a child, and if the child displeases them, give the child back to the state, abandon the child. And now we're talking about God. And Jehovah has said in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, as long as you live in this world, there is the very real possibility that you will slide back for a time into the old way of life. You may appear for a time to us as having lost your faith. You may lapse into a sinful lifestyle that will grieve the Father's heart, bring incredible pain to your family and those around you, your friends, cost you far more than you ever thought the wages of sin would pay you but you will not fall from grace. God will not allow that to happen. Again, Philippians 1, 6, he who has begun the good work in you will carry it to completion. Now God's promise that we are forever his in spite of our propensity to wander from him is one of the greatest comforts that a believer can have in this life. Our eternally secure future does not rest in our changeable nature and our faithlessness, but in the immutable decisions and faithfulness of an omnipotent God. We have said here on many occasions in our uh, affirmation of faith, uh, question one and its answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. And that says basically, what is your only joy in life and death? And it's that God is working everything together in his elect for their ultimate salvation. Well, if this is true, and it absolutely is, why then do the scriptures warn us of the danger of falling from faith? The same writer who tells you that your soul can never be lost will often somewhere else in what he writes warn you to make every effort to keep from falling or failing in faith. In Hebrews 10, 14, the sacred writer tells us this, by one sacrifice, he, Jesus Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now what does that passage teach? It clearly teaches that Jesus made a one-time payment for the sins of all who would believe and he rose again as proof that that work had been accomplished. That those for whom Jesus has made this payment have been made perfect in God's sight, holy in God's sight, righteous in God's sight by that one sacrifice for all time. 
that they can never again be viewed by God as unholy. Yet in Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, you have it before you. The same writer said, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The writer's command in 3, 12 through 14 is for you to guard your heart against unbelief because a heart that lacks faith causes one to fall away from God. We are warned that we experience Christ in the end only if we hold on to our faith to the end. Now, all of Hebrews chapter 3, as I see it, is a sober warning against failure to persevere in faith until the end of life. Those to whom this warning has been written, again, 3-1, are holy brothers and sisters who share in a heavenly calling. Paul instructs these believers to consider first Jesus as an example of faithfulness. What they are to consider about Jesus is his faithfulness to his calling. What is his calling? In the text it says, his calling is described here as an apostle and high priest. So an apostle is one who speaks for God. He takes a message from God and distributes it to the people to whom he is sent. That's what an apostle is. What's a priest? A priest is a mediator who makes things right between sinful humans and a holy God. In our situation, the mediator, Christ Jesus, by his sacrifice, reconciles God to people who are offensive, who have committed um, incredible um, sins that are an offense to Jesus. Now, we're called to ponder, to study, and contemplate Jesus' performance in these roles. And we are told in verse 2 that he was faithful to the one who appointed him. He ran the course that the Father laid out for him perfectly, in perfect obedience until its very end. Jesus told his, fa his Father in that high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4, I glorified you on earth, Father having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And then later on in John 19.30, when he goes to the cross, just before he breathes his last breath, John 19.30, he cries out, it is finished. He had finished the work that the Father had given him to do perfectly. He had stayed the course to the very end of his life. Now, in chapter 3, verses 2 through 5, Moses is held up as an example of one who is steadfast in faith. Now, Moses is human. He didn't live it perfectly like Jesus, but his overall life was one of faithfulness, and we're to consider Moses. The writer says that Moses was faithful in all of God's house, and the writer is careful to point out the superiority of Christ over Moses in the church which is called God's house. That's what's being referred to here. 
Moses served faithfully in the house or the church as a servant, but Christ is the architect. He's the builder of the house and the son over God's house. Now notice the warning given in 3.6. The true members of God's house, the church, are whom? They are those who persevere to the end of this life. We are his house, your text says, if we hold on to our confidence and hope and the hope of which we boast. Persistent endurance is the proof of faith. The proof of faith is not that you went forward in some evangelistic service. It's not that you had some emotional experience that you raised a hand or you signed a card or joined a church. The proof is persistent endurance in the faith. Now, I'm really concerned about that. I know way too many people that think that they're the real thing because they've done some of those things that I listed. And there's just no evidence. There's no fruit of a life that's been changed. And it breaks, it breaks my heart. True believers may occasionally stumble and fall on the mountain trail of faith that we all are climbing. That may very well happen. We may on occasion slide back and actually lose ground in our forward progress that we have been making. We may look at times like we're not even on the trail at all. But for true believers, the desire to climb the mountain always comes back. They repent, they turn from their sin, and they keep climbing. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints doesn't teach ever that we repent, we trust Jesus, and do nothing. We're told in verse 6 that we are to work, we're to hold fast to our confidence and the hope of which we boast. Now, Paul gives his readers an example of apostasy. Faithfulness, now apostasy, and its consequences. Now, what is apostasy? It's an abandonment of the faith. You give up on the faith. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, he reminds his readers of Israel's exodus from Egypt and her wilderness wanderings. The people started out so well. They left Egypt in obedience to God's command, they followed his leading. They witnessed his mighty hand. He provided for them. He defeated their enemy and provided for their physical needs. But their experience in the desert was marred by persistent unbelief and disobedience. In verse 10, God is quoted as saying, I was provoked. The NIV says, I was angry with that generation. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. God, almighty God, was angered, filled with wrath by Israel's rebellion and failure in faith. And he swore an oath that those who called themselves his people would not enter his rest, the promised land of Canaan, which is also a picture of the heavenly Canaan. And you know that God kept his oath. The people over 20 years of age wandered around in that desert for some 38 years, and they died in the desert because of their rebellion, their disobedience, their sin. Now, 1 John 4, 6 tells us 
that God by his very nature is love. And that's a wonderful thing to know. But God hates disobedience, which at its core is a failure to trust that God's way is best. When we sin, we say, no, my way is better than the way God laid out. We don't trust. God often gives rebels against his word vast amounts of time to repent before bringing judgment on them. But God is just, Exodus 34, 7 tells us, and he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that the Lord disciplines the sons and daughters that he loves. If you are here and you're holding on to some sin, don't presume that because you're getting away with it, with a long-suffering, slow-to-anger God, that he will forever overlook your lack of faith. Give up the sin. Ask for God's help to do that. Now, we're not sufficient to do that in ourselves. That would be just sort of another self-improvement kind of thing. But we have the Spirit of God within us to help us, to free us from our sins. Now, people, you know, I've done this ministry thing for 47 years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, in 20, if I survive till 2023, I will have done 50 years in gospel ministry. Now, think of the things that I have seen uh, in my lifetime. And I have seen so many people give up the faith. There are people who sat where you are. If I had time, I could tell you stories that would set your hair on fire as to what they once were and what they became as they fell away from faith. But I want to tell you, people don't go directly from trusting Christ and obeying him and those are inseparably linked, like in the hymn, Trust and Obey, great hymn. They don't go from walking with Christ, obeying him, to walking away from Christian faith. There's generally a long and gently descending path that leads from faith to apostasy, which again is a falling away from faith. Now, our text describes that process. You can look at it now. You can look at it in the days ahead. Sin deceives us. Verse 13, Paul personifies sin, and he talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin comes to you and me and say, God doesn't care if you do this. He doesn't care if you don't do it. Nobody will know. It won't hurt anyone. God wants you to be happy. If you do this, you will be happier. Or if you don't do this, you will be happier. I promise you it happens. I sat in a home with a deacon, not here, my other church, and his wife. And they were packing to split, and I probed a little bit to find out what was happening. And he told me the story of how God came in the person of Jesus that he might have life and have it more abundantly, and that he didn't have abundant life with the wife God had given him, so he was going to leave her and go off with his secretary. That God wanted him to do that. This is what sin does. It's deceitful. Sin replays the Saint Eve conversation. Did God actually say you shall not? You will not suffer consequences? 
God is putting restraint upon you because he doesn't want you to be fulfilled. You'll be much happier if you do it your way. Deceitfulness is sin. Then the specific sin we commit and the others that follow cause calluses to form on our heart. Our heart, verse 13, is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The first time you commit a sin, if you're walking with the Lord, a particular sin, it troubles you. You have pangs of conscience. The still small voice of the spirit within you speaks to you. But after a while, you quench the spirit. Your heart gets hard. Doesn't bother you any longer. And then at some point, the heart which has repeatedly disobeyed God and refused to confess sin, to turn from it, verse 12, leads you to fall away from the living God. Now I'm going to tell us one more time just to remind us that Paul is warning brothers and sisters, 3.12, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, 3.1. He's addressing church members. This could be you. This could be me. We could be on the path that leads to unbelief. We need to examine as we come to the table of the Lord ourselves with the help of God's Spirit to see if we have become calloused with regard to some specific sin that's in our life or sin in general. Ask the Holy Spirit of God to search you as you hold those elements this morning, and I will do the same. We need to see every sin as unbelievably offensive to a holy God. We need to give up those sins that we think don't matter to God or to anyone else before we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from the living God. Our souls are at stake. We only share in Christ, verse 14, if indeed we hold our original confidence, our faith firm to the end. All right, let me ask you a question now. Why does Holy Scripture post such severe warnings against the danger of falling away from faith? And the Westminster divines write, based on Scripture, those whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither finally fall away from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and eternally be saved. I mean, why the dichotomy here? Well, here's the answer. It is theoretically possible for a believer to become so hardened by repeated unconfessed sin that he or she could reject the faith completely and suffer the consequences, which is eternity apart from God in hell. But God, but God who is faithful, will not permit that to happen. The great Princeton seminary professor, A.A. Hodge, Archibald Alexander, people don't name their kids much like that anymore, 1823 to 1886, explained this far better than I can. This is what he wrote. God secures the perseverance and holiness of all his people by the use of means adapted to their nature as rational, moral, free agents. Viewed in themselves, they are always, as God warns them, unstable, and therefore, as he has exhorted them, they must diligently cling to his grace. It is always true also that if they apostatize, they shall be lost. 
But by the means of these very threatenings, his spirit graciously secures for them, uh, secures them from apostasy. So the severe scriptural warnings God has given that warn of the very real danger of the possibility of losing your salvation are part of the means God uses to keep that from ever happening in your case. Even with these warnings, if we were left to our own devices, we would not be able to heed the warnings. We would fail in faith. But God warns us from without, and he works within. Ezekiel 36, 27, God promised, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The risen Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory, provides the power to persevere. A few years ago, Pat and I, and, and go if you have a chance, we're in Montana, we're at Little Bighorn. Little Big, Bighorn was where Colonel George C. Custer and 200 of his cavalry troops were massacred by the Lakota Sioux. Now, I'm a history major. I love to investigate historic sites. I'm a wanderer. Uh, Pastor Kozlowski has said in this pulpit, I think, that if ever I'm arrested, it'll be for trespassing and probably nothing else. I like to really thoroughly examine things. Normally, I would have roamed all over that battlefield in the deep grass, but the National Park Service kept me on the path they laid out for visitors with a warning sign that was adapted to my nature as at least a somewhat rational creature. Can you guess what the sign said? Stay on the path, you were in rattlesnake country. <laughs> Pat Brown said, see, they got you, they got you. Finally, somebody got you. They got compliance from this undergrad history major and this rebel. You live in spiritual rattlesnake country. You live there every day. The viper, young people, old people, you're not too old to sin. I'm appalled at what people my age are doing that they wouldn't have done when they were younger. You live in rattlesnake country. The viper that will kill your soul is sin. God told Cain in Genesis 4, 7 that sin crouches at the door. It's like an animal ready to pounce on you every day when you go out the door. The scriptural warnings which warn of the eternal death that sin brings are to keep you on the path of faith that ends in the eternal rest that God has provided for his children. Believers persevere in faith. Warnings of apostasy aid in the preservation. Preservation in faith requires for most of us connectedness. It is extremely dangerous to try to live your faith without being well-connected, emphasis on well, to other believers in a local church. It's a lot like a person in the 1840s in the U.S. saying, I'm going to go to California or Oregon, and I'm going to leave St. Joe, Missouri on my own and go with just me and my family. Theoretically, you can get there that way, but the chances of doing it are incredibly slim. So what did people do? They connected themselves together in wagon trains of 100 wagons or even up to 200 wagons.
to go through the dangerous territory that lay between them and their destination, and they did it for the safety that connectedness brings. Book of Hebrews, again for the fourth time, written to members of local churches. The writer's admonition to them, 3, 12 through 13, is take care, brothers, sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, that's regularly, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Do you see what God is assuming there? He is assuming that Christians are living their lives in close communion in local churches. He assumes that they are in such close communion that they will notice if one of their brothers and sisters starts down the path that leads to hardness of heart, that leads to a loss of faith. And he also assumes that we will be connected well enough that we can warn a brother or sister of their failure to live up to God's law or their transgression of it, and that person will listen because they absolutely know that we love them and that we care for them. Process doesn't work unless you're well connected to other believers. There has to be a connection between the exhorter and the exhorted. If the person pointing out the sin is not in relationship with the sinner, the one sinning doesn't believe the warning is driven by genuine concern for them, the warning is likely viewed as meddling. 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul compares the church to the human body. There is an organic connection between church members that is like the connectedness of the organs in your body. And based on that Holy Spirit created union, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, we should have care, equal care for each other. Now, I want to tell you, I talk to a lot of pastors, a lot more than you can imagine. And I've been doing it regularly since COVID hit. There's not one that I talk to who is not really concerned about what happens down in the future after we get herd immunity. Pastors everywhere, church plants, larger churches, medium churches, are concerned that we as believers will get so used to watching TV church that it'll be so comfortable for us to go to church whenever we want, bring music from St. Paul's Cathedral in London and hook it with the pastor that's your favorite TV pastor, create your own service, and when this is all over, we don't come back. You need to get back to the community of God's people as soon as it's safe to do so. You cannot do virtual church forever. It doesn't work that way. Your soul and the souls of others depend upon you coming back and connecting maybe in ways that you have never connected before. Now, Hebrews 3.13 is not a suggestion. It's a command for each Christian. I am a part of this congregation. Now, now really, I'm a member of a presbytery, and that changes things a little bit. But at the first level, if you see me sin, you need to come to me and point out my sin to me. And then beyond that, Presbytery gets involved. 
You have a, if I don't repent, you have a God-given obligation to point out my sin. If you don't, my soul is a danger. Verses 13 and 14. You are bound by God to do it before I grow so hard that the warnings have no impact on me at all. You are part of the process that God has provided for me and for each other for securing our eternal salvation. In the text, we ask the question, are you your brothers or sisters keeper? Absolutely. And part of the way that he or she is kept in faith and thus kept from the terrors of hell is by you caring about him or her enough to confront them about their sin. And if you refuse to do that, you're like the person for the National Park Service who's given a bunch of signs to post in rattlesnake country to keep people on the path, and you just don't do it, and people suffer the consequence. Father, thank you for the attention of your people. Thank you for Hebrews 3. Father, we look ahead and we pray that you will bring back your people in this church and all over where the gospel is preached. That people who say they hope they never go back to the office again, I've heard many, won't have that view with regard to going back to church. Father, we pray that you will add to our number as people realize that a virus that they cannot see can disassemble everything they have built in life and even take their own lives. And we pray, Father, that those who are watching on TV, those who are present who don't know Jesus, would realize that he is Lord of all, that he's their only security and safety, and that they would repent of their sins and accept the sacrifice made once for all for those who truly believe. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.